this morning, while I'm not going to review all nine points again for you, I will say that one of the main observations we noted was that God created man in his own image. In his own image, he made them male and female. Both male and female equally share in the very image of the triune God. There is unity and diversity within male and female imaging of the triune God. Both male and female equally share in this image, and yet while equal in being and status, they are different by design. Design not only biologically, physiologically, but socially as well. Herman Bovink said this, and I read this this week. This has been a Bovink week for me, so I'm going to read you a quote that I read that I thought was apropos for the text this morning. The woman in Genesis 2 is not beside the man, but is created from him, created out of him in his image as a helper for man, not as a mistress, nor beneath him as a servant, nor inferior, nor lower, but rather as his own free and independent person distinct from man. Very true. It echoes God's blueprint and God's design. In Genesis 2.18, we were told that it was not good. We looked at this a little bit last week. It was not good, right? God had pronounced his benediction over the glory of his creation. He says, all very good. And then we get to chapter 2.18, and we're told that there's one thing that's not good, that Adam is alone. And I will make a, a correspondent to him. I'll make a helper, an easer for him, one who will complete him. The Word tells us that Adam was formed first, that he might love and lead his wife. And Eve, having been built from the side of Adam to be his helper, submitting and following his leadership as the one who's been given the command to go and fill the earth with the glory of the triune God. That God created his image bearers, male and female, equal equal but different, that they might be fruitful and do all of this to the glory of God. And in Genesis 2, we close with a wedding. We have the father bringing the bride down the aisle into the garden to his son Adam. And we're told there in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. It was blissful. It was beautiful. It was true, and it was good, and God gave his benediction. It is very good, and when God places his benediction on something, you can believe me that it's truly beautiful. It's truly good. When the prince and the princess were in the garden, and there was no sin, and I put here in my notes, and they all lived happily ever after with Adam securing eternal life by passing his probationary test in the covenant of works that he might have this eternal life. And then entering with Eve into God's eternal rest. But we know that's not how the story goes. Well, this brings us to Genesis 3. Male and female, east of Eden where we want to see how sin has distorted God's blueprints and design for biblical complementarity of male and female and their roles and relationships between them. What we're going to see is that the fall, there is a breakdown of God's established order in His design and plan. A, a virus, if you will, has been inserted into the software of creation. But, beloved, sin is never the last word with the living God. Isn't that good? It's never the last word. Judgment might be the judgment of His left hand, but the Word of God tells us salvation and redemption are the work of His right hand, the Son of His right hand, His Benjamin, our Benjamin, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we're told in this same chapter that describes the fall, we're given a, a promise of salvation. 
and hope is given in the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. It's in this grace of the seed of the woman our hope is found for a new creation. When one day God will once again walk with man in the cool of the day. When the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That's where all of history is moving. Like a train. Like a mighty river. It's moving to that grand climax. The wedding of the Lamb who is bride to church. Well, this morning I'm going to look at chapter 3 and make four observations. Let me pray for us as we go before this holy word in this holy hour as a holy people washed in Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1, let me pray first. Our triune God, the God who is the reward and the portion of his people, the God who is our righteousness, the God in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, the God whose word that cannot fail, heaven and earth will give way, but thy word, O Lord, is established forever in eternity. Come now and bless this word, bless the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth. Give me courage and clarity and cogency, compassion, and may I be Christ-filled and Christ-exalting, that your people might not be tossed to and fro, but might be established and rooted and moored in the cement that is Jesus Christ, the faithful Adam, the, the true Israel, that we might know what we were created for, that we might understand your blueprint, that we might live according to it, that we might fall in love once again with it and its beauty and its goodness and its wholesomeness. Make us a righteous people, we pray, our triune God. We pray this for your glory and your glory alone. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you, and by the way, the, the you here is in the plural in verses 1 to 5, so it's y'all. Y'all shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you, again plural, shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you, plural, touch it, lest you, plural, die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise or insightful, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Singular. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you, singular, that you were naked? Have you, singular, eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her seed or offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden or from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the living God abides forever. Amen. Again, this morning, I'm going to give you four observations, not nine. How God's complementary blueprint and design for male and female have been distorted, twisted, maligned by the fall as we live east of Eden, but they have not been abandoned. Those role distinctions, human sexuality as it's defined by God, is still binding, is still normative for the people of God, for all of creation. Distorted but not abandoned. So first, the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Satan first tempted the woman, not the man, in the garden. And so usurped God's design of male headship. Male's leadership, if you will. Now, this point is a little complex, but you are pretty astute. Hopefully, I'll be clear. Last week, I gave you the context. And I made the case that Adam was created to lead Eve. And one of the ways we know this is because Adam was created first, before Eve. We saw that Paul picks up this very point and grounds the prohibition against women exercising authority and teaching in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 13 or verses 12 to 13. This is what Paul says. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Well then Paul gives us the ground upon which he makes this postulate, which he makes this truth. Why? Verse 13, for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. We said that the point Paul was making there was not that first equals best, right? Because Adam's not the first creature. He made lions and tigers and bears before he made Adam. But Adam was the crown of creation. 
So first does not equal best. But rather that the order matters because it indicates that Adam's position in creation is as a priest and a protector of Eve, the weaker vessel. Beloved, Paul goes on in the very next verse, in chapter 2, verse 14, to give a second reason, a second grounding, if you will, why women should not teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Listen to verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Don't listen to it because it's not me. You listen to it because I'm true to the word of God. Listen to what God's word says. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Friends, the very fact that Satan went to the woman with the temptation and not to the man was an indication that Satan was fully aware of God's intention, God's blueprint for human sexuality, male and female. That Adam was to lead, instruct Eve. The very instruction that he was given in chapter 2. Satan knew God's blueprint and design for the man and the woman and he despised it and sought to overthrow it. The Apostle Paul, by pointing out that Satan approached the woman first and not the man, is itself testimony that God intended the man to lead in the relationship. We know this because in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, where God gives the command directly to Adam, where is Eve? She's still in the side of Adam in chapter 2, verse 16. She had not been created yet. The command, the prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given to the man before Eve ever shows up. You see the implication? It was given to Adam directly. But it was given to Eve indirectly. And Paul picks this thing, this very point up, and he grounds the prohibition against women exercising authority in the church for this very purpose. You see, it was Adam's responsibility to instruct Eve in the word of the Lord. Saints, Adam was charged to instruct and protect his wife, but he failed. He failed. He abdicated his responsibility. He was created to be a prophet, priest, and king, but he failed at all three. And did you notice in verse 6, Eve sees the fruit, she redefines what's good, what's delightful, and what's desirable. She takes of the fruit, and she gave some to her husband who was over in the next town. That's not what it says. Adam is standing right there beside her. The defender, the protector, the leader, the prince, the king, the vice regent, God's son, according to Luke chapter 3, standing there when the talking serpent comes. And what does he do? To put it in modern parlance, he has the remote in his hand. He's pouring his life into his work, his vocation, preaching good sermons, sports, play. He does nothing. He drops the ball. Ephesians 5.26 picks up on this reality, I think. You can correct me if I'm wrong. 
5.26 in Ephesians, Paul is instructing husbands. This is what he says. He's making the analogy of loving our wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Christ washed us with his word so that he might present to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle that we might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, husbands, future husbands, we must take the lead. We must wash our wives with the Word of God. That is our duty. That is our calling. We must imitate our Savior who loved us and gave Himself for us and washed us with His Word. You see, that was the very thing He did not do. He was a derelict. That was Adam in his duty. Clearly, he had not instructed Eve correctly or properly. Secondly, the second observation. The first observation, Satan tempts Eve first. Secondly, although the woman sinned first, now listen to this one. This is in the juxtaposition of the previous point. Although the woman sinned first, God approaches and calls the man first, holding him, not the woman, primarily responsible. Satan goes to Eve first to tempt her, usurping the blueprint, the design that's woven in the very fabric and the very software of creation that he made the male and female in his own image. God now comes and goes directly to who? The responsible party primarily. Right? Like in the military, the ship hits the whatever out there in the ocean. You know who's going down? The captain. The onus is on him. Well, he's asleep in the bunk. It doesn't matter. That's the chain of command. He's going to be relieved of his duty because he failed to do what he's called to do, what he was very designed to do. Designed to do, to lead, to use his strength in servanthood to serve his wife, to protect her, to be out front, washing her with the word. After Satan called into question the truthfulness of God's word and his goodness, he blatantly lies to Eve, saying, You shall not surely die. And Moses tells us that Eve begins to doubt the word of God. You know what happens, and this is a sidebar, this isn't against my time. This is another sermon we need to explore, how sin works. You know what happens when you start denying the word of God? The imagination becomes unharnessed from the word of God. The imagination. It loses its mooring from, from God's command, and it begins to take a life of its own. And she starts to redefine what's truly good, what's truly desirable, what's truly delightful to the eyes. The tree begins to take on a different light. Verse 6, chapter 3, that the tree was good for food. And that it was the delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to Adam who was with her and he ate. But I want you to notice again, back to the point, the second point, who God calls first. You see, both the man and the woman now with eyes wide open, naked and ashamed, hiding in the presence or from the presence of the Lord in the trees of the garden. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Singular. He doesn't say, Where are y'all? He calls to the man. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? God knew where Adam was. This is a loving invitation of the triune God calling to his image bearer. The prince, the crown of creation. Adam, where are you? Where are you? 
God knows where Adam is. God wants Adam to know where Adam is. In love, he calls him. He seeks him, just like the Son of Man in Mark 10. Come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That's our God. He's always moving toward his people. And you say, why? Why would he move toward me? Oh, wretched man that I am. Because he is who he is. He is beautiful and full of mercy and glory and goodness. That's better than life, you see. It's all about him. His glory and his goodness. His kindness is better than life. You see, this is the psalmist. This is just the language of Zion. This is the language of the child of God who's tasted of the Lord. Right? It's not just an intellectual enterprise. It's not some sophistry that I buy into. No, he's won my affections. He's won my mind. He's captured me with his beauty and his glory. You see, the romance has won me. He swept me off my feet. My beloved has called And I have answered from the tomb. Here I am. Here I am, Lord Jesus. Here I am. A sinner, vile and wretched. Oh, yet, and yet you love me. You seek me. You call to me. He calls to you today. Jim, where are you? Susie, where are you? Jimmy, where are you? Bill, where are you? Where are you? Come home. Come home, Adam. Yes, you are responsible primarily, ultimately, but Adam, I want you to come home. Because I got a ring for your finger. I got sandals for your feet. I got a cloak for your back. I got a robe, and I want to throw a party. So come home. Come home, sinner, come home. Who is this God? Men don't make up this kind of God. This God who pursues me in my pain, who pursues me in my sin, my vileness, my rebellion. He continues to hunt me. Surely his goodness and his mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You see, this is the psalmist. This is why you need to be in the psalms, church. We need to sing the psalms. Oh, beloved. He holds Adam, not Eve, ultimately and primarily responsible. Again, the command was given to Adam in chapter 2, 16 to 17. The Lord God commanded the man, singular, saying, You shall, you may surely, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Again, the command is given whom? To whom directly? To Adam. And only indirectly to Eve. Saints, it was Adam's responsibility to instruct and protect his wife, but he failed. The Bible is crystal clear that Adam is reckoned the head and representative of the couple. It's not only seen here, but it's also seen in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul sees this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, all of us have been infected with the original sin of Adam in the fall. It's called the Adamic fall, isn't it? It's not called the Evenic fall. Right? Is it? Adam, where are you? You see, Adam, not Eve, was the federal head of humanity. The man given the authority and the power to keep and protect the woman failed taking the forbidden fruit, and God holds him ultimately responsible. Romans 5, right? Through one man's trespass, one man's sin, one man's act of righteousness, i.e. the second Adam. All right? It's always about the one man, the federal headship of Adam. He's responsible. As he goes, so we go. And the beauty of the gospel now, don't miss the syllogism. As the second Adam goes, so we go. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. 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 As he goes, so we go. It's also seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Listen to this. For as by one man death came 
By a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made, what? Alive. Beloved, it's clear that the Apostle Paul understands that what took place in the garden is because of Adam's sin. Again, indicating Adam's headship and leadership in the male-female relationship of husband and wife. And I have here in parentheses, let him who has ears, let him hear. Men, do you hear me? Thirdly, the man and the woman experience the curse of the fall in different ways, each in their fundamental area of responsibility. Let me repeat that. The man and the woman experience the curse of the fall in different ways, each in their fundamental area of responsibility. The punishments that God inflicts upon Adam and Eve correspond to the core, now listen, to the core of their identities as male and female. Respectively, the punishments strike at the very callings God gives them in Genesis chapter 2. Saints, in the fall, God's blueprint and design, complementarity of men and women is perverted. Kevin DeYoung says this, The woman deceived by Satan fell into sin as she acted independently of the man. All the while, Adam abandoned his responsibilities as a leader. He stood idly by while Eve sinned, following her into sin, and then blamed God, the giver of every good gift, for his sin. That's the perversity of our heart now in Adam. That's how vile I am and you are. Adam played the coward, following his wife's influence instead of God's word. He listened to Eve's voice rather than the voice of God. You see, you must obey God rather than men, even your wife, husbands, and wives, even your husbands. If your husband asks you to do something contrary to the word of God, you better obey God. Or if they prevent you from doing something God has required and demanded and it's your duty, you better obey God. Obey God, though it costs you everything. Obey the living God. You see, beloved, in the end, both the man and the woman are punished for their disobedience. For Adam, who's been charged with guarding and keeping the garden, the ground is now subjected to the cursed. It will be filled with thorns, and it will be filled with thistles. Beloved, blood, sweat, tears, and pain will now mark the man made in God's image as he works the ground. The ground he was given dominion over will now bite back. That ground will now consume the man. He came from the ground, and to the ground he will return. Part of the curse. He now lives in the land, I said here, in Ecclesiastes. That's where we live. This is the land of Ecclesiastes. It's enigmatic. There's a profundity to it, and there's a... Sometimes there's a rhyme and a reason for things, and other times there's not. The vanity of men is all around us. The futility is all around us. It's full of frustrations. This is the, the land that we must take dominion over and fulfill his calling, his image bears. Well, for the woman, her unique calling of childbearing will also bear the marks and the effects of the curse. Look at verse 16 as God speaks to her. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and the pain you shall bring forth children. Like the man, the woman is punished, now listen, at the very core of her design. At the very core of who she is, at her design. Her ordained identity as a wife and a mother. Beloved, with Adam, Eve was called to multiply, fill, and subdue the earth as Adam's helper. And now because of sin... 
pain will be multiplied in childbearing. And I have it here, an asterisk in my sermon, and I need to say this. This is a little caveat, not to qualify, because nothing I've said I don't think is ambiguous in the Word of God. But I want to say this. Let me just say here that singleness, right, not all of us are married here. Not all of us will be married here. Let me just say this, that singleness is recognized and valued in the Word of God. Some are given the gift, did you get that? The gift of singleness. But generally speaking, what's normative for all the image bearers, male and female, is marriage. And within marriage, God willing, in His providence, which is mysterious at best, right? To have children. See, the blueprint still stands. It's been distorted and disfigured by sin, by the curse, by the virus. But it still stands. Fourth, the relational wholeness between the man and the woman has been distorted by the fall. The relational wholeness, right? Chapter 2, 24, they're together. They're under the benediction of God. It's very good. They're blessed. They're naked. They're not ashamed. Can you imagine the joy? You know, you've tasted of the joy of the Lord, but you've tasted of it east of Eden. Can you imagine the joy and the benediction of God prior to the fall? Just how God's image bearers existentially interfaced and related with that joy? Psalm 16, right? In His joy... There's fullness forevermore. At his right hand are pleasures. Church, the world needs to see the church enjoying God. (laughs) I'm serious. The apologetic of beauty. That our lives have a fragrance of life, Rick. That we're full, we're full of joy. We have hope no matter who's in Washington. No matter what's happening on Wall Street, no matter what's happening, the joy of the Lord is my portion and my strength. You see, that's the apologetic I'm talking about. They'll see it in us, and they'll praise our fathers in heaven, you see. The relational wholeness between man and the woman has been distorted by the fall. To the woman, God said, not only will your pain be multiplied in childbearing, but look at 16b. Notice what he says there. Look in God's word, because again, you want to measure every word that I say by the word of God. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this word desire here does not mean affectionate, romantic desire. It doesn't mean that. I don't believe it means that. Here, rather in context, in the context of judgment of the serpent of Adam and Eve, the word desire is a desire for mastery. Her desire will be a desire to rule over her husband, to master her husband, to step into the void that abdication of leadership creates, right? We know this experientially, right? When there's no leadership, there's this void. And God is saying here, the woman will step into that void when the husband abdicates. And her desire shall be to master her husband, to rule over him. Why do I say that? Because if you turn one chapter over, chapter 4, verse 7, God there speaks to Cain, warning him of the impending danger of sin. It's, he's plotting to kill Abel. And God tells Cain this. Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. The word desire, now listen, this is what's so fascinating. The word desire and the sentence syntax from the very Hebrew 
in chapter 4, verse 7, is the exact same word and syntax in chapter 3, verse 16. So what's the Holy Spirit saying? Let me cut to the chase. That just as sin desired to have mastery over Cain, that he might kill his brother Abel, so here in Genesis 3.16, the woman now fallen in sin will desire to have mastery over her husband. But now because of sin, because she is now going to live east of Eden, her desire will be to usurp the authority of her husband. Her desire will be to have her own way rather than to submit to her husband. Why? Because she's now a sinner. She's now been infected with this desire to master, to rule over her husband. Well, men, you didn't think I was going to get to you, did you? Well, what about the man? What will he do in response? What will he do because he is a sinner as well? We're told in verse 16b, God's still speaking to Eve. Your desire shall be to master your husband. But notice what it says. But he will rule over you. Where does sin come from? Where does conflict come from? I'm master. No, I'm master. I'm the lead. No, I'm the lead. I'm the ruler. No, no, I'm the lead. Right? Physics. Water boiling at 200 degrees, 210 degrees Fahrenheit. Molecules banging together, friction, energy, upheaval. The ruling over by the man, now distorted and twisted because of sin, happens in two ways. Let me give you two of them real quickly. You know what, we're just, just, we're just dabbling right now. I wish I had you for three hours. It's that important. It's that important. It's that important. This ruling over by the man is now distorted in two ways because of sin. First, he will use his God-given authority selfishly. That is for his own selfish ends. To lord it over his wife. To dominate her. To oppress her. Don't you know that I'm the leader in this home? You need to obey me. You need to submit To be harsh with her. To fail to live with her with understanding. Right, now, You're not exegeting her. God hadn't given you all the women, husbands. He's given you that one that sits beside you. You're to know her, what makes her tick. What does she love? How can she be loved? Right? To love a woman. That's what God's calling you to, men, to love her the way God designed her to be loved, made her, specifically, uniquely. He lords it over her. Well, the other way the man may respond when his authority is challenged to, to acquiesce. We do this one really well. I do this one really well. To no longer lead, but to passively give up abdicate responsibility oh it's so hard to serve you know this cross-bearing thing it's really kind of it's tough i don't want to die to self Catherine and i don't will have any problems as long as she does everything that i say never have problem no a problem whatsoever she just does exactly what i say to do But we abdicate. We passively give up our God-given authority and leadership in the relationship. Okay, whatever, just leave me alone. Just stop the nagging. Drip, drip, drip. I get it. Am I getting too close to home? We go and we hide. This is what the session is seen. I'm going to tell you what the session sees. I'm going to let you behind the doors, behind the curtain. You know what we see? We see husbands demonstrating this, abdicating their leadership. You know how? They've run to their work. So rather than work 40 hours a week, they work 80. 
to escape, to abdicate, to run away, to hide. Or they get so involved with everything under the sun other than their wife and their children. They got their hands in everything. Sparky can tell you, he's, he's done it longer than I've done. He's done it better. This is the way it works. This is, the way we, this is who we are. This is the lot God has to work with. This is who we are. I'm just holding up the mirror. Beloved, basically the husband ends up doing exactly what Adam did in Genesis 3.6. He abdicates his role as the head of his wife. He abandons her. He doesn't go out and he crush the head of the serpent. He's not a dragon slayer. Husbands, God has called you to be dragon slayers. Not in just so romantic, whimsical way. No, to go out and slay the dragon. To kill it. Saints, let me conclude with this. We briefly looked at God's blueprint and design for male and female image bearers as God designed them in Genesis 1-3. to There's much more to say. I have time, but you don't, right? We have seen that defining manhood and womanhood is not left up to us, the image bearers. Male and femaleness is not left up to us to define nor are they cultural or social constructs, but they are part of creation. And though distorted by sin, they are still God's blueprint and design. You might not like them. You might not find them very appetizing. That You might put them in your mouth and go, I don't like it. What's the world going to say? They're going to be so offended. How are we going to win the world if we, you know, if we do this? We have male headship and women's submission, women following men, and uh, I don't know, that just won't be, oh, I can't do that, no. Who cares? Who cares what the world thinks? The world crucified the Lord of glory. It crucified Him. They will crucify you as you stand for truth. But you must stand. And by God's grace, you will stand. Beloved, when we ignore the wisdom of God and go our own sinful way, we reap the whirlwind. The abandonment of God's blueprint is anything but freeing. To reject the triune God is nothing less than death. Do you want death? We're surrounded by a culture infested with death. It's obsessed with death. That's what you get when you abandon God's blueprint and His design. If we really want to thrive as image bearers in this present evil age, then let us embrace the yoke of our Creator, His blueprint and design for us found in His Word and found in nature. So you have three, well, four, counting yourself, right? The Word of God, you bear witness to it, the Word of God bears witness to it. Nature bears witness to it. And what else? Who else? The Holy Spirit. Four witnesses to the truth of God's truth. Self-attesting truth. You see, the chapter that tells how the creation has been subjected to futility by the sin of Adam is the same chapter that promises that another Adam would come, a better Adam, a faithful son, the seed of the woman who in the fullness of time, born of the virgin, under the law, would redeem those under the law, that we who are enemies now, east of Eden, might be reconciled to God and made children of God. We might cry, Abba, Father, make me like your son. Make me like Jesus. Give me your grace to lead like Jesus as a husband. To sacrificially lead. To die to self-interest. Not to dominate, not to abdicate, but to lead her, to wash her, to love her. Oh, Jesus, make it so. Oh, and Jesus, may I follow and submit to this imperfect man because I'm submitting unto you, Lord Jesus, because you love me and you gave yourself for me. I will submit and I will follow this man who has feet of clay, who's fallible, who's quirky, who leaves his socks on the floor, 
who's so reluctant to serve, I will follow Jesus because you say so. Isn't this beautiful? God's ways are beautiful. They taste really good. I want you to taste them. All saints, we're not home. We're in exile, but we press on in hope. We're looking forward to the day when sin will be no more. May God give us grace to remain faithful, adorning God's goodness in our design as male and female in His image until we arrive in the new heavens and new earth. Don't miss it. You know Jesus Christ? You know Him? Is He just a theory to you? An idea? Today's the day of salvation. You come to Jesus Christ. You trust Him. The beautiful one of Scripture. The Son of God. The one in whom the Father is well pleased. And you know what He'll do? He'll place you in Him. And He'll clothe you with His garments. The white raiment, right, is... The revelation speak of. We'll be clothed in the garments of the Lamb. It might set us free to be obedient sons, children, daughters of the Most High God. There's so much more to say, church. I want you to believe it. I want you to trust it. And I want you to start imbibing it and adorning it. And I want you to pray for me that I'll do it. That I'll love Catherine in this way. And she'll submit to me as a fallible, imperfect man, all to the glory of the triune God. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this is not just a mere intellectual exercise on the Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, 1045. It's meeting with you, God, and your holy, infallible, inerrant word, and being conformed to that word by the power of the Spirit. Come now and bless the sacrament and seal to our hearts the precious promises of the gospel in Jesus Christ, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.